You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, our middle school class is going to be meeting down the stairs here. So middle schoolers, you can make your way over there right now. Uh, The rest of you, if you would please open with me in your Bibles. We're going to be studying in the book of Acts again this morning, this time in Acts chapter 25 and 26. So on Sunday mornings right now, we're currently going through a study of the book of Acts in our series, which we're calling Revolution. And in, during the, in this series, what we're doing, we're looking at the ways that Jesus, the ways that God worked in and through the early Christians in the wake of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And we've been looking at the revolution that took place uh, in the world because of who Jesus was, as a, as a word about who Jesus was and what he had done went out into the world, how it changed individuals and families and even societies and ultimately the world. And what's exciting for us is that this same revolution continues on in our day and we get to be a part of it. We're quickly coming to the end of this series and so uh, I want you to be on the lookout for our next series which is going to begin in May and that series is going to be called The Pursuit of Happiness. So you'll see that coming up soon. But until then, these last few chapters of the book of Acts are some of the most uh, dramatic and, and hopefully inspiring for you as we study through them. So please open with me, Acts chapter 25, and let's bow our heads and pray as we open up God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are God who is faithful to speak to us and meet us in our needs. Lord, we thank you that you are God who's bigger than we can fully comprehend. Lord, not only are you able, but we thank you that you are willing. And so we thank you this morning that you are able and willing to speak to us. And we ask that you give us open ears to hear everything that you would speak to us this morning. Let us receive it. And Lord, we ask that you would cause it to produce much good fruit in our lives. For our good and for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you a question. How would you feel if I told you, or let's say this. How would you feel if God told you, I'm going to do something great in your life, something really significant. Well, that would be great, right? But then he finished the sentence by saying, but the way I'm going to do it is through difficulty and hardship. Well, that's a lot less exciting, maybe. Uh, But here's what we've been doing. We've been following the life and ministry of Paul the Apostle, this great missionary of the first century who went all over the Roman Empire telling people who Jesus was and what Jesus had done so that they could be made right with God. And when Paul became a Christian, we read about that in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, he was told something, something was said at that time, and that's this. God said that he, Paul, would be God's chosen vessel to proclaim his name before kings and rulers. That all sounds pretty great, right? Like you're going to have an illustrious speaking career. It's going to be great. You're going to, God says, I'm going to send you to the rich. I'm going to send you to the famous. You're going to speak to celebrities. You're going to speak to Congress. You're going to speak to the president. Wow, that sounds awesome, right? And, and you're going to be my chosen vessel to tell the rich and famous all, all the wonderful news about Jesus. Wow, what an amazing privilege that would be. Only thing is, God didn't tell him at the time how that was going to happen. It wouldn't happen by him becoming a socialite. It wouldn't happen by him becoming a celebrity or a powerful person. Rather, it would happen by him becoming a prisoner. It would happen by him going on trial for a crime that he didn't commit. It would happen through a series of appeals because he would be the victim of a great injustice. 
And it would be through these appeals, because of this injustice, that he would get the opportunity to stand before kings and rulers and get to talk to them about Jesus. You see, it all began when Paul had gone to Jerusalem to deliver a gift of financial aid. And when he was there in Jerusalem, some people recognized him, and they weren't very happy to see him there because Paul formerly had been a leader in the religious establishment of the Judaism there in Jerusalem, but he had become a Christian. And a lot of Jewish people at this time were becoming Christians, and it was something that made the Jewish establishment uh, very nervous because they could see as their numbers and as their influence was declining rapidly. And so they responded to this by harshly attacking Christianity and using the power and influence which they had to try and stop the spread of Christianity. And so when these people recognized Paul there in Jerusalem, they accused him of doing something he hadn't actually done. They accused him of trying to defile the temple. And although that wasn't true, it was certainly effective in getting people very upset and it caused a riot to ensue and the Roman military had to intervene and Paul ends up getting arrested because it was assumed that he had done something to upset the people and spark this riot. But when it came to trial, it became clear that Paul hadn't committed any crimes but that these people were just out to get him because he was a Christian. Right now, as we pick up the story here in chapter 25, Paul is being treated kind of like a political hot potato. Nobody wants to touch him. He's being passed from one official to the next because nobody wants to proclaim him innocent because that would be political suicide amongst the conservative religious Jewish people there in Israel. So the officials keep stalling. They keep trying to pass him off. They keep trying to not make a judgment, pass his case off to somebody else. And in the meantime, two years has gone by, in which Paul is just kind of being on hold, you know, just being passed from one department to another. And you can imagine how incredibly frustrating this must have been for the Apostle Paul. I think none of us like to be on hold, right? Like uh, when you call the insurance company or your, your mobile phone carrier, and it, nobody likes to be on hold. It's frustrating. Everyone knows what it's like to be passed around from one department to, a ne to the next department, and nobody's actually helping you, and nobody, even though they could, they just don't seem to want to help you. So you you can imagine how frustrating this must have been for the Apostle Paul to be on hold, so to say, for two years of his life. I mean, during this time, he could have used that time to go on a fourth missionary journey. He could have taken the gospel to far-reaching parts of the world. But in spite, of Paul, Paul, in spite of Paul's frustration, the fact was that God was actually using this time, that God did have several purposes with it, even if Paul wasn't aware of those in the moment. And it was through these frustrating, through these very lame circumstances that he was in, that Paul is now going to get the chance to stand before kings and rulers and tell them about Jesus. Once again, let me ask you, how would you feel if God told you, I'm going to do something great in your life. I'm going to do something significant through your life. I'm going to use you in great ways. But the means through which I'm going to accomplish that is through suffering and hardship. Because that was the case here with Paul the Apostle. That's the story of this part of his life. Uh, and it was also certainly the case with Jesus. If you think about it, Jesus accomplished the greatest accomplishments that have ever been accomplished in the history of the world. The most significant things that have ever been done. He made a way for us to be reconciled to God. But how did that happen? It was through suffering. It was through hardship. It was through shame. It was through rejection. And ultimately, the cross. And that should give us some perspective on our lives as well. Maybe you're wondering in your life right now, you know, God, why are you letting this happen to me? 
Well, maybe, just maybe, it's because through that, he's wanting to accomplish something significant in and through your life. You see, in Christ, as Christians, we have a hope which goes beyond this life. We have a God who is big enough to use all things for our good and for his purposes. And that's why James is able to write this radical statement in the epistle of James where he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. You see, the only way that you can do that, the only way that you can have joy, even in the midst of difficulties and frustrations in your life, is if you have a God who is big enough to use all things for good and for his purposes. And the title of today's message, by the way, is this question, how big is your God? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And there are two things to consider in regard to this. Number one, is your God able? And number two, is your God willing. So those are the things we'll be talking about. Let's uh, pick up the story though here in Acts chapter 25. We're going to read from verse 1. It says this in verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So here in Acts 25, we begin the chapter seeing that there is a new Roman governor in the province of Judea. The former governor is the guy we read about last week in chapter 24. He was a corrupt man named Felix, and now Felix has been replaced here at the beginning of chapter 25. There's a new governor in the province, and his name is Claudius Festus. The seat of the Roman government in Israel, by the way, was in Caesarea. This was a seaside town on the Mediterranean coast, which was actually built by Herod the Great. Uh, So that was where the Roman government was seated. But immediately after arriving in Israel, Festus takes a trip down to Jerusalem because he wants to connect with the Jewish religious leaders. Now, the Jewish religious leaders at this time, they didn't have any real power or authority, but culturally, they were very influential, and so Festus wanted to get on good terms with them right away. So immediately after coming to power, he takes a trip down to Jerusalem to meet these people. Let's continue from verse 2. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Two years have gone by. Do you realize this? Two years. Paul's been sitting in jail for two years, and you'd think that in two years' time, you know, these Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem who are just bent on killing Paul, you would think that by now they would have kind of gotten over it, right? Like they would have moved on to the next thing in their lives, but no, they have not. There's, they're still crazy adamant that they want to kill Paul. And it's kind of, kind of crazy, really, that after two years, these guys are still obsessed with killing Paul. This bitterness and this resentment in their hearts has only seemingly grown over the past two years. And, and I wonder if there's any of you here today, just as I think about that, I'll say this quickly, but I wonder if there's anyone today who would say, you know, for you, it's actually been more than two years. More than two years that you've been holding on to a grudge or, or some kind of bitterness against someone who did something that hurt you. Let me be the one to tell you this morning, you need to let go of it. You know, resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness, these things are absolutely toxic. It has been said that holding on to resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. In the end, you're only hurting yourself. And maybe that's you. Let me tell you, you need to let go of it for your own sake, for not only emotionally, but spiritually. You know, Jesus said that as long as you are refusing to forgive others, you will not experience God's forgiveness in your life either. 
The Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, they are obsessed with killing Paul. Even after two years uh, has gone by and Paul's just been sitting in prison. And when you think about it, you realize that two years of being locked up in jail, this might have just been God's way of saving Paul's life from these people who wanted to kill him. We talk about the sufferings of Paul here. Well, we might... might need to also realize that this might have also been God's protection of Paul during these times. And I think that's true in our lives, that sometimes we go through various trials and sometimes it's only later on. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty when we're able to look back and realize in hindsight that God was actually using those things for our good. Let's, re- let's continue from verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let the charges be brought against him. So Festus says, look, if you guys want to have a trial, then we got to follow the proper procedures. Paul's up in Caesarea. I'm not going to have him transferred down here. You guys come up to Caesarea, and we'll have a trial there. Verse 6. After he stayed there not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood among him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the Jews, uh, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So once again, the Jewish leaders uh, come, they present their case, this is like the third or fourth time now, accusing Paul of all kinds of things which they cannot prove, they have no evidence, and Paul stands up and says, look, I haven't done anything wrong, and there's no evidence, so this should be an open and shut case. There's nothing to decide here, there's no evidence, there's no real charges, this, this should be very easy for you you to decide. Verse 9, but Festus, uh, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me? So once again, this comes down to politics. Festus is new in the area, and he's wanting to win favor with the Jews. And so he says, hey, what if we relocate this trial, just like you guys had said before? What if we just relocate this whole thing down to Jerusalem? Now, why would he say that? Well, here's why, because he can see that, there's, that Paul hasn't done anything worthy of punishment or, or conviction of a crime, but yet wanting to do something, throw them a bone, have a concession for the Jewish leaders, get on their good side, he says, okay, what if we do this? We'll relocate the trial to Jerusalem, and then there we'll do it, and then if I have to pronounce him innocent, at least I did them a favor by you know, acquiescing and saying, okay, let's do the trial down in Jerusalem. So he's trying to make a political kind of popularity play here. So how does Paul react? Verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So it was the right of any Roman citizen who felt that they weren't being treated fairly, that they weren't being given a fair shake, that they weren't being treated justly or fairly by the courts, they could appeal their case to Caesar. This is kind of like, for us, our court of appeals or even the Supreme Court. Citizens could appeal their case to be heard by Caesar himself. 
it was a way really to guard against corruption because if a case was appealed to Caesar and it became clear that injustice had taken place, not only would the person who was being tried, not only would they be acquitted, but the authorities who were carrying out the miscarriage of justice, they would be punished by execution. So it was a pretty serious thing. Now, you might have to wait for years for Caesar to get to your case. He's a pretty busy guy. But during that time, you would have to remain in custody. You would remain a prisoner. But if you were willing to do that, if you were willing to wait, then Caesar himself would hear your case and he would pronounce a final judgment. So that is what Paul has chosen to do. The Caesar, by the way, at this time was Caesar Nero. By the way, if you're taking our church history class, we're going to be talking about Caesar Nero uh, this week and probably next week as well. As a result of Paul's appeal here, he has now set a process in motion through which he is going to remain in custody and he's going to be transported to Rome as a prisoner and there he's going to be held until he waits, uh, as he awaits trial before Caesar. Now from this point until he meets Caesar, it's going to be at least two years, another two years of life being on hold, another two years of waiting until Paul finally gets to have his case heard by Caesar Nero. Now we can be sure that when Festus heard this, when Festus heard that Paul was appealing his case to Caesar, he must have gotten very nervous. Because here's the thing, if this case goes to Caesar, it's not only Paul who will be on trial, but it is Festus who is going to be on trial before Caesar. Because part of the case is going to be determining whether or not Festus has done an injustice, whether he has failed to do justice, which he has. So Festus, hearing this, he immediately realizes... I'm in big trouble because now I'm going to have to answer to Caesar as to why I didn't pronounce this guy not guilty and let him go when I had the chance. So Festus, he goes and he checks with his counsel and they say, yeah, that's the law. Your hands are tied. If he appeals to Caesar, you have to send him to Caesar. There's no choice in this matter whatsoever. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. So this is kind of like when a new neighbor moves into the neighborhood, right? You go and you, uh, you say hi to them, you knock on their door, pay them a visit, you get to know them, make their acquaintance. That's what was happening at this time. Festus is new in the area. He's the new ruler, so the other leaders from the uh, local area are coming by to make his acquaintance. And this guy is one of them. His name is Agrippa the king. Now that might sound familiar, and it should sound familiar to you because we've already read about an Agrippa here in the book of Acts, but it was a different Agrippa. See, this guy, Agrippa, uh, he is part of the Herod family, which is one of the worst families in the history of the world. They're like the Mansons times two, right? Uh, he is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, by the way, is the guy who tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was an infant, and the way he did it was by ordering all the baby boys in Jerusalem to be put to death. This is what caused Mary and Joseph to take baby Jesus and become refugees, and they went to Egypt for several years. Uh, this man's great uncle was Herod Antipas, who was the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded and then his head served on a tray for his wife's pleasure. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who we read about earlier in the book of Acts. He was the one who had the apostle James executed back in chapter 12, and he had Peter imprisoned. This guy, Herod Agrippa II, that's who this is, he was the last of the Herod dynasty. 
The Herod's family authority really had been diminished at this time from its height with Herod the Great where he really was ruling over all of uh, what was Palestine at the time to the point where today at this point where we're reading here, they were really nothing more than just figureheads, kind of like the, uh, the British royal family. They had really no power. They were just kind of, you know, king and queen and everybody, you know, is all about the, pom- the pomp and the circumstance and all that. So along with Grippa comes this woman whose name is Bernice. Now Bernice, we know from history, is his half-sister. When their dad, Herod Agrippa I, had died, he had kind of said, okay, both of you guys are going to rule the kingdom together, and so they're co-rulers. And not only are Bernice and Agrippa half-brother and sister, but they were also boyfriend and girlfriend. Can you say, ew, ew, right? And to make it worse, uh, Bernice became Agrippa, her half-brother's girlfriend, after divorcing her first husband, who was also her uncle. Can you say double you, right? So because they were half-brother and half-sister, they never got married, and it was kind of the, you know, it was the the stuff of tabloids at that time. Uh, They never got married, but they lived together, and they had this incestuous relationship. So historians also tell us that Bernice at one point left Agrippa for another man, a Roman general by the name of Titus. Maybe some of you are familiar with that name because Titus was the Roman general who in AD 70 led the Roman troops against Jerusalem, laid siege to the city, and burned the temple to the ground. So she had an affair with Titus, which is just all the more weird and messed up. And after her affair with Titus, she returned to Agrippa, her boyfriend slash half-brother. So just some weird, messed-up people, just the worst family ever. Verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed." So here they are, they're hanging out by the ocean on their uh, chaise lounge chairs, right? They're drinking pina coladas, and they're making small talk and hanging out. And so Festus says to Agrippa, oh, so, so check this out, right? I, I took over here as the governor, and there's this guy locked up in the prison, and he was here when I got here, and it's just the craziest thing. The Jewish leaders are just hounding me. They're just pressuring me all the time to convict this guy and execute him and put him to death. So I figured this guy must be some kind of serial killer or something really bad, right? But then we did this trial, and it turns out that he hadn't actually committed any crimes. But, but now I'm kind of in a bind, right? Verse 19, he says, rather, than, rather, they just had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain man named Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So this Roman official has just come to town. He's only been here for, you know, a couple weeks. But he is able to discern, he's able to put together the pieces that at the core issue, that the core issue of the Christian faith, the debate about Christianity, is this claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And truly, that is the bedrock issue. That is the thing upon which all of our faith stands. So let's continue, verse 20. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. 
Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. Here's the thing. Festus is in a jam. He's in a bind because unless he comes up with a good explanation of something that Paul actually did wrong, Caesar Nero is going to think that Festus is, at best, incompetent and, at worst, completely corrupt. And it would seem that the latter is the case. And so he's going to be in big trouble, and he knows it. And so he needs, he's telling this to Agrippa because he wants Agrippa to help him out, help him find something that he can accuse Paul of doing. He's, and so Agrippa says, look, okay, how about this? We'll have a big event, I'll listen to him, and I'll see if I can't find something that you can charge him with when you send him to Nero. Verse 23. Now on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now what's happening now is not a regular trial. It's not a trial like the other ones we've seen so far. This one doesn't have any legal bearing. What this is going to be is more of an event, kind of like a sporting event even. I mean, it's held in an amphitheater, which is an outdoor amphitheater by the sea. The ruins of it still exist in Caesarea, and this would have been an event that was open to the public. Try to picture the scene for yourself. I mean, here's this outdoor amphitheater. It's kind of like a small outdoor stadium, and it's packed, probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. You've got dignitaries there. Anybody who's anybody is there. And, and King Agrippa and Bernice, they come in with all this pomp and circumstance, like this is the red carpet at the Oscars, and then they bring in Paul. Now, we know from later on in the next chapter that at this time, Paul, as he's brought in, he is chained up. So here comes Paul the Apostle in chains, and they set him in the midst of this large amphitheater. Verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought no longer to live. But I, I found that he has done nothing deserving death, and he has appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, we may have something to write. For it seemed to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to indicate the charges against him. Verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So stretching out your hand when you speak, this is how an orator would speak in that culture. But imagine the drama of this scene. Here's Paul the apostle. He lifts his chained hand up in the air and he begins to speak to this crowd of hundreds, maybe thousands, which includes the king and all the celebrities of that day. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs of the Jews. Uh, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, the only thing I am guilty of is believing that what the scriptures say is true. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I believe that God raised him from the dead. And don't you think this is ironic that these are the very things upon which Judaism is based? 
These are the very hopes of Judaism. And these are the things I believe, the hope of the Messiah, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and these people want to put me to death for believing these things. And now here comes the big question, verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why should it be thought incredible by any of you that God would raise the dead? This is a very reasonable question, actually, if you think about it. He's using reason. He's using logic. The issue is that if Paul believes that God raised Jesus from the dead, and these people are having a hard time believing that, Paul reasons with them. He says, here's my logic. If you believe in God, and God is really God, meaning he's almighty, meaning he's all-powerful, if he's the creator of all that is seen and unseen, if he created everything with just the word of his mouth, if God is really God, then why would you, think, why would you find it hard to believe that he could raise somebody from the dead? You see, the real question that Paul is asking these people is a question which all of us need to consider, and that question is, how big is your God? What Paul is telling these people is that if they find it hard to believe that God could raise someone from the dead, the fact is that they have a skewed and incorrect understanding of God. You see, the real question, the bigger question that we might ask is this, why should it be thought incredible by any of you that God would do anything? I mean, when we're talking about this question of how big is your God, this is really the first issue. Is your God able? What is your God able to do? You see, the difficulty of any task is measured by the ability or the strength of the agent doing the task. For example, I I cannot go down to the rail yard and lift a train car. But yet, there are machines that lift train cars all day long. And it's no problem for them to do it. For me, it's impossible. But for them, it's, it's not even hard. Why? Because they're more powerful than I am. Another example, my daughter, she's three months old. Her big accomplishment is that she's kind of able to hold her head up sometimes, right? This week, she lifted her feet up while she was laying down. That was a big deal. But she can't sit up. Uh, she, she's not very strong. And so imagine that I decide, you know, Hope, it's time that you, you know, cut this out and get stronger. So I'm going to take you to the gym, and we're going to build some muscle. We're going to go lift some weights, right? So I take her to the gym, and since she can't sit up, I figure it's good to start with the bench press because you do that laying down anyway, right? So I put 100 pounds on the bar, and I just bust out like a bunch of them because for me, that's no problem. It's easy. But for her, completely impossible. Why? Because the difficulty of any task is measured by the ability or the strength of the agent doing that task. See, so as for me, it would be impossible to raise someone from the dead. God, fortunately, is not like me. He is all-powerful. So things that are impossible for me are not even difficult for him. See, one of our natural tendencies, I think, as human beings is to project our limitations onto God. Uh, we, We think that God is probably kind of a lot like us, only maybe a little bit stronger and maybe a little bit better, right? We, We project ourselves onto him. We assume that things which are difficult for us are probably difficult for God too, and, uh, that there are probably a lot of things out there that are just too big for him, things that are even just too big for God to do. You know, one of the things I find really intriguing is when children draw pictures of God. Have you ever seen that? Maybe if you have kids or you've you've worked with kids before. You know, sometimes they'll draw things like 
you know, they'll draw like a really big person next to a really small person. Obviously, the big person's God and the small person is them. And that's understandable because we speak about God as a person. So it's also good that they understand that God is greater than they are. But at the same time, doesn't it also reveal this tendency within us to assume that God is a lot like us, only maybe a little bit bigger? See, what we need to realize is that God is not like us at all. He's altogether different. And one of the ways that he's different is that he doesn't have the limitations that we do. One of my favorite things is when kids draw something really abstract when they're trying to depict God. I remember one drawing we used to do, uh, you know, kids camps, and we would get these drawings. And so one of the drawings was this kid used just a white crayon, and he just colored the whole paper in white crayon, right? That was his picture of God, just expressing God's purity and God's holiness, and God is altogether different. Uh, another kid, you know, just drew nothing, uh, which was either a cop-out or brilliant, I'm not sure, and he said, uh, I, I drew nothing because, you know, you can't see God, right? So I think those abstract drawings sometimes hit closer to the truth, uh, that God is really nothing like us, and, and we can't fully comprehend his glory and his greatness. Why should you think it impossible that God could do anything? If he really is God. See, some people would say, I have trouble believing the Bible because the Bible's full of all these stories of supernatural things, and I just don't think those things are possible. Other people would say, I don't think that God is able to help me in my situation because my problems are just too complex. But really, the root issue here is this How big is your God? Is your God able? You see, we fail to comprehend the power and the reality of God. And many times our God is too small. Now that's not to say that God is actually too small, only that the way that we perceive him to be, the way that we assume him to be is smaller and weaker than he actually is. Some people would say, I can't believe that God would actually part the Red Sea, that the walls of Jericho would just fall down, that Jesus actually did miracles, that Jesus rose from the dead, because those things are just simply impossible. Now those things would be impossible if God were like us, if he had the same limitations that we do. But if God is really God, if he is all-powerful, then there's nothing which is impossible for him. There's nothing which is even difficult for him. Now, of course, there are things which God can't do. Uh, God can't lie. God can't sin. God can't cease to exist. Uh, another one is because God is just, he cannot simply overlook sin and wrongdoing which is the very reason which Jesus came, because God cannot just overlook sin and wrongdoing. The penalty has to be taken by somebody, and so to take the penalty for our sins so that God could be, as Paul says, at the same time, judge and justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus for salvation. But the list of things that God can't do is pretty short, and none of them really have, the, have to do anything with ability. You see, he is the Almighty, we know that he created the Milky Way galaxy, which has billions of stars in it. And you know what's even crazier is that not only did he create this Milky Way galaxy, but he created millions of other galaxies, which are as big or even bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. And you know what's even crazier than that? It says in the prophet Isaiah, uh, he says that God is able to span all of these galaxies between his thumb and his forefinger. That's how big God is. Now that same God who created these vast solar systems, he also created teeny tiny atoms, which themselves are kind of like miniature solar systems with particles orbiting around a nucleus. And they're so small that it takes one million atoms just to make the width of one strand of hair. 
And yet there's so much power in even just one of those atoms that if you would split it, boom, explosion, city is destroyed. And in our lives personally, we need to realize that he is God and there's nothing which he is incapable of doing. There's nothing which is even difficult for him to do. So whatever your problem, whatever your need, whatever your concern, is he able? Absolutely. He is almighty. There is nothing which is even difficult for him. I love what Paul says to the Ephesians before he prays for them in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. Now, I don't know about you, but I can imagine some pretty crazy stuff, right? Like some pretty wild stuff. And he is able, he is immeasurably, he is able to do immeasurably more than what I can even ask or even imagine. If he's able to create everything from nothing, if he can hold all things together by the power of his word, if he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, then why should I think it incredible that God could do anything? So how big is your God? Is he able? Absolutely, that should be the answer. He's more than able. No matter what you're facing, it's not too big for him. But then on the other hand, you have people who might say, okay, well I, well, I know that God is able, in theory, to do anything. It's not his ability that I question. Rather, it's his willingness that I question. So that's the second question when it comes to this idea of is, how big is your God. The second question is, not only is God able, but the question is, is God willing? For many of us, it's not the ability of God that we doubt. It's his willingness to help us personally. Maybe God is able to do anything, but is he willing to help me in my situation personally? Now, the answer to that question is found by looking to the cross where Jesus hung. Here's what God's word tells us in Romans chapter 8. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. See, what this verse means is that God is not only able, but God is willing, and the cross is the proof of that. He has already intervened in your situation to meet your greatest need, your need for salvation, your need for forgiveness and for redemption. How much more can you be assured that he is not only able to meet all of your needs, but he is absolutely willing to intervene on your behalf and take care of you? Psalm 84 verse 11 says something really interesting. It says this, No good thing will he withhold from those who are righteous. No good thing will he withhold from those who are righteous. See, that's the message of the cross, that you and me in Christ, if we have put our faith in him, we have been declared righteous before God. Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us as a gift. He took all of our sin upon himself, and he declared us righteous before God. So then this would apply to us, wouldn't it? God says, no good thing will he withhold from those who are righteous. But yet the thing is this, sometimes God does withhold things from us, doesn't he? He doesn't always give us what we want. He certainly doesn't give us everything that we ask for and certainly not in the timing that we might ask for it. So the question then is this, if God is able and God is willing, if God is able to do all things and he's willing to give us all things and withhold no good thing from us, then what are we to conclude? What are you to conclude if you're Paul the Apostle and you spend two years in jail for a crime that you didn't commit and you pray and you pray, God, get me out of this situation. God, let them do right by me so I can get out of this jail and get back to serving you. But it doesn't happen. 
Or in your own life, what are you to conclude when you pray and you ask for things earnestly and it doesn't happen? What are we to conclude in those cases? Well, if we know that God is able to do all things and we know that God is willing to give us all good things and withhold from us no good thing, then that means this, that if God does withhold something from you, then we must conclude that that must not be a good thing for you. At least not for you, or maybe at least not right now, because perhaps God has something else, something better in his plan for how he wants to work in and through my life and your life. You see, God had a plan with Paul being in prison, a plan to do something glorious in his life, and he did, but the way he did it was by allowing Paul to be a victim of injustice, by allowing Paul to sit in jail for years for a crime he didn't commit. Let me ask you, do you believe in a God who's that big? Do you trust that not only is he able to do anything, but he is willing, even he is committed to doing what is ultimately best according to his love for you and his perfect knowledge and plan? Because if you do, if you do believe that, it will give you an incredible perspective. It will fill you with an indestructible confidence in regard to whatever situation you're facing at the moment. You'll be able to be in jail like, like Paul the Apostle was and later on where he's able to say, I am a prisoner by the will of God. He's able to say, I wear these chains by the will of God and for the glory of God. See, that kind of confidence, it comes from looking to the cross where God did that which we could never do. He cleansed us of our sins. He forgave us. He reconciled us to himself. He gave us a new identity, a new future, and a new life. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me encourage you today. Embrace the gospel. Put your trust, put your faith fully in him today because he loves you and he's proven that on the cross. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for this truth, Lord, that you died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, but not only did you die, you rose again. Lord, I pray for us that you would help us to have a correct picture of who you are. Lord, that, our, that we would have a God who is truly, that our image of you would be truly worthy of who you really are. Lord, that we would see that you are able to do all things. Lord, that we would see that you are not only able, but you are willing to intervene even in our situations. Lord, thank you that you will withhold no good thing from those who are righteous. And so thank you, Lord, for that incredible confidence we have that in whatever situations we are facing, we can know that you are above all of it, that you are sovereign, that you are providential, and that you love us. Lord, I pray that that truth of the gospel would encourage our hearts today as we go forth, that it would give us a perspective on our lives. And Lord, that like Paul, we would be confident to say, whatever situation I am in, I am in it by the will of God and for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.